Have you ever been in a situation where you ultimately ask yourself the question whether it might be in relation to some project you had undertaken that was not going as you thought it would, may have become more costly than you had initially thought it would, and you finally say, I just wonder if this is really worth it. (laughs) Was this really worth it? Some of you, by the look on your faces, have been there more than once. (laughs) Well, uh, we probably all have been uh, in regard to certain things. But I want to ask that question in the most important realm in which it could ever be asked this morning. Does it pay, is it worth it, in other words, to serve the Lord? Have Have you ever reached a point in your life, if you are a Christian this morning, where you ask that question, or if you have never obeyed the gospel of Christ, have not yet become a Christian, is the reason you have not because you have determined that it is not worth it, or that it does not pay to serve the Lord? From whence does this question come? It comes from Psalm 73. And I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the 73rd Psalm because we're going to spend some time with this Psalm in answering this question this morning. In effect, asking, does it pay to serve the Lord? Because in effect, that was the question the psalmist was asking in this particular Psalm. Does it pay? Is it really worth it? To serve the Lord. Now, as we begin our study, and before we get into the text of Psalm 73 itself, let me state at the outset that the the answer to this question, the proper answer to this question, depends on, on how we answer two other key questions. The first of which is, what prompts you to serve? What is it that prompts you to serve the Lord? Why are you serving the Lord? What motivates you to serve the Lord? That's a key question. And the second is, what promises are given to those who serve? And do you really understand and fully appreciate the promises that God has offered, has promised to those who do serve the Lord? Because you see, in answer to the question, what prompts you to serve, it should be love is the overwhelming motivation. The gratitude that you have for the mercies of God. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 12, beginning at verse 1? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, listen to it, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Upon what basis did Paul make his appeal? Upon the basis of of duty, on the basis of fear, No, we talked about it some in the Bible class this morning. He made his appeal in this text upon the basis of God's mercy. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Think about his many mercies toward you. And the passage we looked at in Bible class this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Paul there wrote, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them 
and rose again. What is it that prompts you to serve? That's a key question. And we also mentioned this morning in Bible class that John reminds us in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love keeps on casting out fear. He wrote in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And then he adds, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then he adds in the next verse, we love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Perfect love keeps on casting out fear. So what is it that prompts you to serve? That is a vitally important question if we're going to reach the right conclusion to our question, which is, does it pay to serve the Lord? Now, what about the promises that are given to those who serve? Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4, 8, For, godly, for bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise, there it is, promise, of the life that now is and of that which is to come. The promise that God offers to those who serve Him is a promise that's here and now and hereafter. It is the best life. It is the abundant life. And yet it is the life that most people living, who have lived and who will ever live tragically, will reject completely and never know. And yet in John 10.10, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And what a life it is, as it is a life that helps to lead others to Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 through 15 speaks there, Paul does, of the work that the Christian does in bringing others to Christ. And the added reward that the one who does that will have when this life is over, and the great joy that he will experience or she will experience as we all stand around the judgment seat of Christ and as we hear those whom we've had a part in leading to Christ and strengthening in Christ, as we hear the word spoken to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joys of your Lord. What joy we will experience if we hear those words spoken to those whom we have influenced, whom we have taught. As Paul expressed that to the Thessalonians when he said, You are my glory and my joy. When? In the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. You are my glory and joy. When I hear you approved of God, I'll have an added joy and an added glory. He called the Philippian church that same thing, my joy and my crown. My joy and my crown. Truly taking seriously the Christian life, seeing it as the abundant life, and knowing the promises that are given to those who serve will help us to answer the question, does it pay to serve the Lord, to answer it properly, as will a proper understanding of what prompts us to serve. Now with those in mind, those key questions... Let's look at Psalm 73 and break it down in the following way. First of all, verse 1 is conviction. The psalmist expresses a present conviction. What is it? Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. That's his current conviction, if you will. 
That's where he is at this point in time. But he's going to take us back in time when that was not his conviction. He had almost lost that conviction. And therefore, he's going to tell us then in verses 2 through 16 about the conflict. About his conflict that he had. In effect, verse 1, he's expressing his current conviction. I know that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The psalmist says, I know that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Yes, I know that, but, you see the next word in verse 2? But. And this introduces us to the conflict that he went through, all the way down to verse 16. What was the nature of that conflict? He said, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I had almost lost that conviction. Why? For I was envious of the boastful. The King James there says foolish instead of boastful. I was envious of them. I was envious when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And what did he see in the wicked, in their prosperity? He saw their prosperity. That's the point. He said, verse 4, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. In other words, they wear their pride proudly, <laughs> very proudly and openly. Of course, Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's what the psalmist is going to learn. But he had almost lost that lesson. <laughs> he had almost lost sight of that lesson. As he said, I kept looking at these men who don't claim to be followers of God. They are not righteous in their lives. They are prospering. They are not undergoing the same kind of, of difficulty that I am undergoing, that others who are trying to live right are undergoing. He goes on to describe them in the latter part of verse 6. Violence covers them like a garment. In other words, they simply are involved in violence. They have no qualms about it. Their eyes bulge with abundance. Verse 7, they have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. They don't care about what they say. They're not guarding their lips. They're not weighing their words. They are completely unrestrained. And yet, they're doing very well. And the psalmist was having a real problem with that observation of that. And those of righteous nature were, verse 10, seems to describe that very thing. Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. The indication, I think, their tears are just flowing like fountains. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Some have interpreted these verses to mean that these are the wicked still being under discussion, and that may be valid. The point is, they're not concerned about God. They're not concerned about their lack of knowledge of God. They have no interest in learning about God. Behold, these are the ungodly. Verse 12, 
who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, verse 13 tells us where that led him. It led him to the brink of spiritual disaster. Because here was what he was about to verbalize, if you will. Here's what was in his mind as he really dwelled on the riches of these wicked people who had no interest in spiritual things and yet were not suffering as the righteous were suffering. He said what? Verse 13, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. That's where he had come in his thought processes. That's where he was. He was about to conclude, I've cleansed my heart in vain. They've done nothing to bring their lives into harmony with God's will, and yet look at them. Look how they are prospering. They're not being punished. They're not being plagued. They're not suffering. And yet I am, and I have washed my hands. In other words, I have... I have cleansed my heart, and yet I'm plagued. Well, that does remind us that in our particular day, in the Christian dispensation, but in any dispensation, those who cleanse their hearts and are followers of God have not become shielded automatically in so doing from sorrow and from struggle and from difficulty and from trial and from temptation. But what they have done is they have they have entered into covenant relationship with God, a relationship that will enable them to successfully deal with those sorrows, deal with those struggles, overcome those temptations. But not, not if they begin to seriously ask the question the psalmist was asking, does it really pay to serve the Lord? Because look at what all I have sacrificed, one might say. Look at what I've given up. You know... For us to deny that there is pleasure in sin would be foolishness. There is pleasure in sin. The Bible tells us that in relation to the statement that is made about Moses in Hebrews 11. Moses chose to suffer affliction, chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to do what? To enjoy the what? The pleasures of sin for a season. The Bible doesn't deny that sin is pleasurable. And what the psalmist is struggling with here is seeing the pleasures of sin in those who are among the wicked. He's seeing the plagues of the righteous and he's beginning to wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And it's not something that was peculiar necessarily to the psalmist here. It's something that has no doubt occurred time and time again throughout time among those who have chosen to serve God, who have encountered difficulties, who see the lack of difficulties in others, who see the attraction to the pleasures of sin, and who ultimately go back into the world and turn their backs upon the Christian life, the truly abundant life. But, he says in verse 15, if I had said... I will speak thus. In other words, if I had said, 
I'm just going to verbalize this. This is going to be my position. Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children, which tells me I better watch my words. If I had said I will speak thus, what an influence that could have had on others and would no doubt have had, just as our words and our actions have an influence over others. We better watch our words as well as our actions. And so if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. And then verse 16, the end of this section, which we've designated as the conflict, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Just too painful for me, what? Until. And that brings us to the conclusion that he reached in verses 17 through 20. And verse 17 is the turning point here. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. In other words, until I turned my mind back to spiritual things and dwelt upon the teaching of God. Until I did that, I was in a lot of trouble. But when I turned to the sanctuary of God, that sanctuary for us today is the church, that sanctuary for us today is the scriptures that tell us how to deal with the apparent prosperity of the wicked and the plagues that sometimes seem to befall the righteous. We need to go to the sanctuary of God. And I don't mean just come into the church building and think about it. I mean turn to God's people and turn to God's word. And that's what he did. Then I understood their end. What is their end? Verse, six, uh, verse 18. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. I thought about, I thought about their ultimate end and what God's word says about their ultimate end. And we need to think about that as well. If and when we are tempted to ask the question, does it pay to serve the Lord and begin to think in terms of a negative response to that, we need to turn to the sanctuary of the Lord, to the scriptures and to God's people and to the church and in those scriptures, we will read passages like 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10, which is a passage that reminds us of the psalmist's words here, when you awake. Remember what Peter wrote there? Talking about the fact that the Lord's promise, is not, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord's not slack. The Lord's not asleep. Although the psalmist uses the figure of sleep when he says, when you awake, it's simply a figurative expression really relating to the very thing Peter writes here in Second Peter 2. 
or 2 Peter 3, rather, verses 8 through 10. And that is that the Lord is not asleep. The Lord is long-suffering. Long-suffering. And back at verse 8 of 2 Peter 3, he says, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And then he goes on to say, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is what? Long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is going to judge this world through Jesus Christ one day. And the psalmist ultimately was able to come to that conclusion after working through his conflict. And what did that bring about? Verses 21 and 22, it brought about contrition. A contrite heart is pleasing to God, isn't it? And once the psalmist had worked through his conflict, he experienced contrition. Listen to verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. Then verse 22, I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. That's how ashamed he was of doubting God. How ashamed he was of doubting that God is still in control and that the ultimate end of the wicked is going to be everlasting destruction. And he understood and appreciated once again what prompted him to serve God and what the promise was that God had given him. And then his contrition led to a restored confidence in the last verses of this beautiful psalm. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. He guides us today, does he not, with his counsel, with the word of God. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to Glory. Now you contrast that with what is said in verse 17. I understood their end, he said in verse 17. Their end is destruction. My end is glory. That's what the psalmist ultimately came to realize once again. Their ultimate end is destruction. Mine will be glory. After being guided by the counsel of God throughout the remaining days of my life. And then he asked, Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. And then he says, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart fail. Our flesh is failing, isn't it? Our flesh is failing. Passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 beginning at verse 16, reminds us of that, doesn't it? As the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, our flesh is failing, our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. How so, Paul? While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then he goes on the next chapter, For we know that if our earthly house, 
this tent, as the New King James renders it, is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's what the psalmist came to realize once again. He had almost lost sight of that. He had almost returned to living for the here and now rather than living for the hereafter. And yet he now has come to the realization that indeed, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. As James reminds us when he says, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And he concludes with, I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And so he's come from almost reaching the point back in verse 15 to declaring that he was giving up and that it no longer paid to serve the Lord But when I thought to speak thus, I realized I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Then I went into the sanctuary of God, and instead of declaring it does not pay to serve the Lord, now I'm going to spend the rest of my days declaring your works to as many people as I can. And here's what we should take away. From this study, never lose sight of what prompts one's service to God, His wonderful providence and His sure promises. And in doing this, you'll never lose your perspective. The psalmist here in the last verses of this beautiful psalm has regained the perspective that he once had. And so we go back to verse 1, And that's where he expresses that regained perspective when he says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are are pure in heart. And God will be good to you if you will purify your hearts in obedience to him. And his goodness toward you will not mean that you will have riches and wealth and no sickness, no sorrow, no trial, no tribulation. No, that's not what he promises. He promises you the abundant spiritual life and the ability to deal with whatever life deals you because you can come through it as a child of God. Be stronger on the other side as you look toward the heavenly abode and realize that yes, while there are those, many of them living for the here and now and who seem to be prospering in so doing, Their ultimate end, tragically, unless they change, is destruction. But yours is glory. A glory unsurpassed. A glory that God gives to the pure in heart. Would you purify your heart in believing, repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus, and being buried in baptism this morning? That's how one must purify his heart initially. That's obedience to the gospel. And if you've done that, but you need to come home to your first love, And purify your heart again as you return to your first love in repentance and confession of sin that needs to be confessed publicly. That we may pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you supremely and who waits to forgive you completely of every sin that stands between you and him. That you may spend the rest of your days declaring his works 
and answering in the affirmative. Does it pay to serve the Lord? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. As we stand to sing, will you come?